Hey, I'm Pauline, and this is a Journey to Fulfillment podcast. Learn from awesome people who have gone through personal transformations so you can be inspired to grow, create, and live a truly fulfilling life. Hello, everyone, and I've got a special guest on the show today. Her name is Lisa Chin. Welcome. Hey, Pauline. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, thank you for coming on. So, Lisa, please introduce yourself and what do you do? My name is Lisa. I'm actually located in the U.S. You can't tell from my accent. And I am a mother to three children. I am a follower of my curiosities and inspirations. And I would say that what sums me up is that I seek to live an inspired life. And I do that through following those curiosities, observing and creating. And that pretty much sums it up. Wow. That's really powerful being like leading with curiosity to live an inspired life. Where did your journey all start in terms of, you know, seeking to live an inspired life? I think that like a lot of people, I was always like that. I think that who we are is innately within us. It's just that we don't realize it until we examine it. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that I've always led with curiosity and inspiration, but I didn't really realize that until I became a mom and I was, and, you know, I'm like a self-development, you know, geek and all that. So I was listening to a podcast on the way to an appointment and I, all of a sudden this question of who am I kind of came to head and I was driving and I almost drove off the road. I was six months postpartum with my daughter, my oldest, and I was just kind of getting back into like normal life. You know, I I kind of adjusted to motherhood finally. And I felt like I could go back to like going to appointments and different things like that. And then I I asked myself that question and I didn't have a good answer for that. And so I spent the next year and some on looking and listening and reading at everything with the lens of what does this mean about me? And I don't know how many podcasts I listened to, how many articles I read, how many personality tests I took. And then I was in the midst of a writing course. And all of a sudden I was, I was going to bed one night and it was like one o'clock in the morning. I like jumped up out of bed. I was like, I live an inspired life. And at least at that point, I was taking notes in a Google document because how much time do like, new moms have to actually get on a computer and write or journal? Mm. So I had this Google Doc and I was typing furiously. I'm like, I live an inspired life. What does that mean? And I realized for a really long time, I had been living an inspiring life. And that was a life where I was trying to get the likes. You know, I was trying to get people to be like, oh, that is so cool. Or I want to do what you're doing or you're inspiring me. And I can't say I was intentionally doing that either, but it was almost like I was just being led by culture, right? We are in this culture where we're seeking the likes. We're seeking kind of that external validation for what we do. Mm. And so I realized the difference of living inspired life and living inspired life is that when living inspired life is to lead a life where I'm inspired first and foremost, and then maybe other people will be, but it really doesn't matter. And I think that almost, you know, not almost all, but like a, a lot of the self-development stuff and, and personal growth things that are out there. And I just say that, like, do you know who you are and follow your own path? Mm. And those who are attracted to you, will follow and those who aren't will follow someone else and that's great yeah exactly that is so powerful and it really is the core of our living like you know like who are we and that question is just it's so it can get so deep because there are so many aspects of ourselves that we can reveal what has been you know you said lead an inspired life what does that look like sound like feel like or imagine for you Mm. Or that you discovered? Great question. I think that you kind of are saying it in a really cool way because you're talking about like within your body, like how do you feel when you live an inspired life? And for me, like I'm shaking right now. And that to me, I know that I'm kind of onto something because I know like when my body gets excited, I shake and it's like kind of this like frenetic energy. And so I kind of follow that when that happens. Like before when we were kind of chatting before the call, we were talking about different topics. And then one topic, I was like, okay, I'm shaking during this topic. I think that this is what I would want to talk about. Mm. So like within the body, I think it's really important for us to examine how we feel. I've studied a little bit of somatic experiencing and, and just, I'm not an expert by any means. That is still something that I'm trying to 
learn more about, but the idea of like being in your body and like feeling the sensations and, and just being in touch with that. Mm -hmm. And then in the day to day, I think for me an inspired life is just following the curiosities and going to bed kind of, I don't know if you're familiar with human design, but I'm a generator and they say, you know, generators, you use all your energy and you go to bed tired. (laughs) That's a sign of a good day. Mm -hmm. And that to me is, that's what I seek to do. I, I work full time and then at night I will write and I will kind of work on all my various projects. And then I go to bed late and people just think that I, they don't know how I do it. I don't drink coffee. I, I have three kids. My mom lives with me. So she's kind of my, my savior, but it is a life where I am just fired up about different things. And it leads, it first and foremost leads with just what excites me. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious when you say that, you know, you get like supercharged and fired up and you have that feeling within yourself. Was there a point in your life or a moment when you didn't, you weren't living an inspired life and that like that was pivotal for your growth? I would say that I've always had, you know, aspirations of starting my own business. And it was like 2007, I had this business idea to start a delivery food service for new moms. And then it sent me down this track of like holistic health and wellness. I got like a coaching certification. I wanted to work with mothers. I didn't because I was doubting my ability to do so because I was not a mom at that point. Mm. And then I've had ideas along the way where I was looking for validation. Like I have a background in business, a business degree. And like you're looking for market research, you're looking for surveys, you're looking for all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so in 2000 and 15, 16, right around the time this whole idea of being living in Spire Life came to mind, I ran a wellness week at my company. And at the end of it, I was like, oh, I, I should do run wellness weeks for companies all over the place. I, that would be amazing. And it would bring in all these different things that I've worked on in the past. And then I thought, oh, I should create a summit with interviewing different experts. I could learn from it. I could expose myself, put myself out there, maybe raise some capital. And then right around this time that I kind of came up with this like mantra or whatever you want to call it to live an inspired life. And I asked myself, if I don't make a single cent from this summit, would I do it? And I can't even tell you, like the thought hadn't even finished in my mind before a visceral no came. Like I almost wanted to like throw up. And wow. then I was like, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm not doing it. So then yeah. I had already bought a course to run summits. I spent a good, good amount of money on it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, okay, if I don't make it, if I were to do a summit on something and I made zero dollars on it, what would I do? And it immediately went to motherhood and it immediately went to the fourth trimester, which is the first three months after birth. And so I did that and, and it was the best decision. And it, it changed the way that I create and it changed the way in how I looked at my projects and my work. Mm. Is this something that you mean you had that hard no that was calling out to you. Is this something that you've always been connected with, with like your intuition or like a self-talk or is it something that's come about over time? I would say that I wasn't as aware of it. I'm sure it had been within me because I kind of, I've been diving into human design, so I'll probably reference it a couple of times during this call, but as a generator specifically, you have your, like, like my, what works for me is to ask me yes or no questions. And so that question of, if you didn't make any money from the summit, would you still do it? Is a yes or no question. And so that like understanding that that's kind of how I, I'm designed, it allowed me to kind of answer that. I would say that my first exposure to human design was probably around that time as well. And I've practiced it a little bit more since then, six years ago or so, five or six years ago. And I would say that if I had known it since I was like, if I had known it when I was a little kid, I'd probably be like an expert at listening to my body, right? And these are the tools that I wish, you know, parents learn and share with their kids. But they probably knew at some point, right? But it's also really easy to override it. Yeah, that can be an automatic thing as well, where I suppose when that search is strong for the need for external validation or the need to be successful, whatever that might be for people, then maybe that voice isn't loud enough. That no maybe the no's are actually quite quiet. So you can't hear it, right? So yeah, like you said, it's going to get overrided until at some certain point where, you know, chaos takes over. I'm really curious because you've mentioned the human design a few times. I've looked into it a little bit myself as well. 
But just to give the audience a bit of an idea, you know, what is the human design and yeah, what's that all about? Okay, so I'll say I'm not certified in it. I've never taken an official class in terms of how to like read charts or anything like that. But I can kind of give you kind of my understanding of it. It's a combination of a bunch of different like personality type, energetic type forms or profiles or structures, frameworks kind of meshed into one. So I think it's like a total of five, but the ones I can think of, it's astrology, the Kabbalah, I Ching, and then a couple of other things kind of mm-hmm. all pushed together. And it was apparently some sort of like divine intervention that this founder of it kind of came upon. For just the regular person, you can go on a few different websites and you just enter your your date of birth and your place and your time. And I'm just kind of like astrology and it's out like... Like a profile. Explanations of like everything. Yeah. It's a profile. Mm-hmm. And it, it'll tell you like there's different gates. It gets really in depth and yeah. I'm... I've scratched the surface and even scratching the surface is like a fire hose, but you find out your types. So there's like reflectors, projectors, manifesting generators, generators, and manifestors. Five different types. Most people are generators or manifesting generators, about 70% of the population. And then next I think is manifestors and then projectors and then reflectors. Reflectors are like 3% or something really Mm -hmm. tiny like that. Each person, each type has kind of like a role, generators, kind of like what you would think like they're kind of like the energizer bunnies like they're like the workhorses but it has to be something they love to do Mm. and it's that and they respond with like yes or no and when they get when they're not kind of living that life they get frustrated and then manifestors which I know a little bit about because all three of my kids are manifestors is that they kind of don't and I may butcher this so I apologize to anyone who just take this with a grain of salt like go do your own research on this but manifestors kind of they do their own thing essentially what my kids do. They do their own thing. What's really important for them is is they need to learn to inform people of what they're doing. They don't need to ask for permission, but they need to inform and they like to be informed. So like with my kids, like they like for me to give them a heads up on like the schedule for the day. And then with my oldest, she's, she's seven. So she's a little more autonomy, but like she, like if she were to go down the street, her nature is not to be like, Hey mom, can I go down the street? She's like, Hey mom, I'm going down the street. <laughs> like mm. that's just kind of what she does. And then projectors kind of are really good at like reading people is how I see it. And then reflectors, reflectors are really interesting. I don't think is I know like a reflector. Percentage, you said, like only Very small. Or something. Yeah. It's like three or 2% of the people are reflectors, but they're kind of like the ones that are like super open and they will kind of show back to you what's going on. I think that's kind of the, the gist of it. And then, yeah, it's just like a really I think that there's value in so many of those different profiles. Like I kind of, yeah. It kind of gives you like a framework of like sort of understanding how you work and how other others work so that you can, I guess, be more compatible or find ways to, to work with each other as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you, and you take what you, what resonates and you leave what doesn't. I also think that as we kind of grow as people, the things will resonate with us at different points in our lives. So it's Mm -hmm. not like, like you don't have to, go into human design and like go full force into it just kind of wade in and then see and then like if it's like really cool and you want to find out more about it then dive in deeper if you're kind of like well this doesn't feel right like then don't don't do it and just take another personality test or look at astrology in a different way or you know for me the first foray into this whole like self-development thing was holistic health and wellness and like so instead of going down the path of like human design go down the path of ayurveda and mm. find out you know, like what kind of type you are. And that also has its like so much like self-awareness and growth can come from just learning about yourself, what activates you. And it also tells you like kind of how you work and what times of day are best for you to do certain activities. I mean, yeah. it's so amazing. Be, like optimal in your, in the way that you work and play, I suppose, and live. Yeah. I'm really curious if we can go back a little bit, you mentioned a, a little bit back that you were a, like interested in health and wellness and, you know, holistic health. How did that journey start for you? Or like, has this been something that you've always innately been drawn to? Good question. I, so I'm Chinese American. So my, I'm second generation and I grew up in a household where we would drink tea instead of take Tylenol for fevers. And there was this idea of like, you know, when you're, if you eat too many fried foods, your body's too hot. So then you have to kind of rebalance it. So that was never taught to me. That was just part of the culture of the household, right? 
and it was mm-hmm. kind of in my body and in my knowing. And then the first day of my corporate job, one of my friends comes over and she like slides this paper next to me. And she's like, what do you think about the acid alkaline diet? And I like had never heard of it. Yeah. And it was also like the most random question, like within the first two hours I'm working this corporate job. And so I look at it and I'm like, okay, like it's kind of like Chinese medicine a little bit. Like, you know, some things are a little different, but I kind of get it. That's pretty cool. And then I started diving into it probably mostly because of her and kind of we had a, a bullpen, we called it, of analysts. And we started doing yoga together. We started exploring like cleanses. We did cleanses in the office. And and then I had that business idea for those meal service for new moms. And I thought, well, if I were to do that, like what makes me different than ordering from Domino's? And I was like, well, it's obviously nutrition. And like, mm-hmm, exactly. what kind of nutrition do new moms need? Mm-hmm. And so it kind of, I just started diving into like, okay, what does that actually mean? And like, what is nutrition? And my background again is in business. I didn't really take many science classes. Like oceanography is not going to help me in developing a nutrition based friendship. <laughs> and then I moved from New York to Boston. My husband, who was my boyfriend at that point, got me this book called Integrative Nutrition. And it was this program in New York. It's actually in New York, this program in New York to learn about holistic wellness. And then I had a strong yes to join when I heard that they were moving their classes online and the class that I would be joining if I joined, like, you know, the next class would be the last live class. And mm. knowing how I am as a learner, I was like, I got to go. So I so then I commuted from Boston to New York for a little bit. And that was kind of the first entree into really diving into like all these different modalities and frameworks and kind of reframing and looking at health from a holistic way, not mm-hmm. just the nutrients that we take in, but the experiences that we have. And, you know, one of the, I think the last weekend that I was in New York for the classes, I had this really profound understanding of who I am. And it was going back to the womb. And, there, and the question was, you know, we were working with partners and I was like, okay, talk to your partner about like what you know about your birth or when you were in the womb. Because hmm. it was talking about kind of your like what happens intergenerationally and things like that. And I, was, I didn't know that much about the womb, but like that time, but I was like, I compared myself and my brother and I was like, well, his personality is like, he's super chill. He's like the nicest guy. And he's like pretty laid back and he kind of like flows with everything. Whereas I'm like, on a mission. I'm trying to get things done. I'm very much like more regimented in a way, but I'm, I'm more tactical. Yeah. And, and then I think about like my mom and my mom, when she had my brother, she was in China and just, you know, doing her thing there. But then when she moved to the U S she worked in a factory and she had to produce and she had to get things done. And then I found out, like I learned from her a while back that she was, she kind of hid my pregnancy from my family because they were immigrants, not well off, another mouth to feed would be kind of a burden. And then my brother was, he's hard of hearing. And so they were afraid that, you know, I would be disabled of some sort. And so there was a moment in time where my grandmother wanted her to abort me. Once she found out, it was like six, she was, I was six months in the womb at that point. And she, she had this conversation with her mother-in-law. And she told me about this. And so I was talking to my partner and I was just exploring kind of like what my mom must have been feeling at that point. And just this idea of like what she was feeling was I'm keeping this baby and she's going to do something and she's going to prove you wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is something that I've always carried with me. I just didn't know it until I, you know, examined it a bit. And that was a profound shift for me as well. So when you said that you examined it, sorry, just go back to, so was this like an exercise or something that you were exploring? Yeah, it was an exercise. Like the program that I was part of was held in this like huge auditorium at Lincoln Center. And a lot of it was lecture style, but then there was a lot of partner work. And so you would kind of coach the person next to you, whoever that ended up being. I don't even remember who I was talking to at that Mm -hmm. point, but they shared their childhood with me and then I shared mine and, or whatever, like not childhood, but womanhood. Yeah. yeah. Had you known about this origin story before, or this was something yes. that was, okay. So yeah. my mom had told me her side of the story. And so, so that was kind of all I knew. So that when yeah. I was having this discussion with my partner, I was like, oh, well, this is kind of what I know. This is the only thing I really know about my, the time in the, the womb. Like everything else is like, well, I just assumed because I know she was working in a factory and I knew she was in China. And so just the, the comparison. So yeah, it was just using the information that I know. But mm-hmm. I do encourage people to find out like if they're able to find out a bit about like, the time in the womb because with 
my work with the fourth trimester summit, it's been shown to profound so much can be laid laid like foundationally for yeah. you during that time. So if people were curious, like find out, map it, talk to your your parents or your grandparents about it if you can, if you're if you have that opportunity to, it's yeah. it can like, really inform you. And I think even like I've heard from other people as well, like psychedelics I mean that's a whole Mm. different conversation but psychedelics has helped some people to revisit some of these past experiences to really go back to the origin because I also believe that a lot of things that happen in the womb or at the time of you know pregnancy it does shape the DNA or you know that's the external environment already coming in so that's making up who you are and so it's quite fascinating to you know a lot of things are predetermined potentially from just that it is predetermined. It doesn't mean that it's permanent, but yes, yeah. it's predetermined. And I'll share a story. This this person I interviewed for the summit, he's a psychologist out in California, Dr. Tony Madrid. And one of my other guests was like, you have to talk to Tony. Like he's doing this stuff and it's amazing. And basically what he, just the short of it is that um, he was studying maternal infant bonds and the disruptions of them when the baby is in the womb or right at birth. And he correlated, found a correlation and causation actually between a disruption in the womb or at birth between the mom and the baby and childhood asthma and Mm, pediatric asthma. And he was able to resolve in a study at NYU, he was able to resolve 80% of childhood asthma cases by working on the mom. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that, that connection between as in, mother no, and child. Is, is it before? Sorry, are they like, as in working on the mom, were you saying like, is this after? This is before? after. This oh. is after. Like say the child is seven years old, they're on the playground, they're having trouble breathing, yeah. you know, and being a child. And he goes in and he talks to the mom, works with her on, on reliving, re-experiencing her pregnancy and the child's birth in an optimal way. So like mm-hmm. there are many, many things that can cause a disruption in that bond. It could be a death in the family. It could be moving cross country. It could be that your husband took a phone call while you were pushing the baby, you know, could be a divorce. It could be that, you know, your house went on, you know, like you lost your house to a fire. Any, like really any time that your attention is taken away from the baby Mm -hmm. can cause that disruption. And so the work that he does is, and he's, he trains people to do it is to just work and walk the mother through whether it's through EMDR or hypnotherapy or any really number of different mind-body techniques but walking Mm -hmm. them through that and having them re-experiencing it and reconciling it and then they're able to then like there is like he he has this book with all these different stories and there's like a story of like not only does the child have asthma but the mother doesn't have a good relationship with the child she even said something like, I don't even feel like she's mine. I don't love her. And then they do this work. And the first time he did it, it was a 10 minute hypnotherapy session and the child's asthma was gone. You know, like can be so profound. Yeah. The hypnotherapy work. I know I do some of that as well. And it's just so profound when you can really go back to certain moments in time along your timeline and then really address certain things. And that can really, like, like you said, reconciling that can really just change the game moving forward. Like everything mm-hmm. changes. Amazing. And quickly as well. Yeah. Right. So, um, right. It's like this, you're addressing a moment in time and it's like almost a switch turns on or off and mm. you're like, Oh, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I want to share something towards that because I was watching a video with Tony Robbins and there was a guy who stuttered it's quite a popular popular yeah you've seen it yeah and it's just like about I just give a quick snippet but it's just about how the guy who stuttered he's in sales and he's been stuttering his whole life and they just did some kind of timeline technique that allowed him to travel back to the very first time that he you know, ever started the habit of stuttering. And it was based on some cartoon show that he was watching while his parents were fighting in the background. And, you know, with, with children, it's like they're, they've got certain brain waves uh, that allow their unconscious mind to just absorb certain things that happen, especially when they are in like chaotic environments or so there's some disruption, like you said, then these things can just bypass 
their minds and it just goes straight in. So then they develop these habits, which they can carry on until they can actually address or find out, you know, how did they even get it in the first place? So like something like that was pretty profound. So if anyone wants to go on YouTube and just check out the guy who stutters. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking about when you were telling me about this. Yeah. Yeah. I love that video. I sent it to some friends and it just is amazing. And you cannot you know, I think that, you know, there's a lot of people who are skeptical, like you can't fake that, that, I don't know. I mean, mm. you sure you can, but it's just, when you see something like that, or like when I hear the story of like, when I heard from, from Dr. Tony Madrid, what he does, like, you just wonder what else is possible. Yeah. And it's just having awareness. Like literally it was just having the awareness that fixed the problem. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. Before we continue with this episode, I'd love to take a few moments to invite you to join my free resources course library. Inside, you'll get access to my guided meditations and practical tips to help you power through your day with more clarity, ease and confidence. So if you're ready to raise your energy and create fulfilling success on your terms, just head over to journeytofulfillment.com. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. That leads nicely into the identity piece of things. When you mentioned that, you know, you've come from a Chinese background, I'm the same as well, and you got into, you know, started learning about holistic wellness and all of that. How has your perspective changed from like knowing that you've got that backing of that culture and there's a lot of different beliefs and traditions and everything in terms of wellness to learning and going on your own journey with it. How has things changed for you within your life or how you conduct your inspired life? I think that growing up Chinese and particularly in America, I have a different perspective. And I think that in the culture in the States, it's very black or white. And particularly very, you know, over the past year and a half, the like the race discussion is very black and white, right? And and I also think that societally, culturally, psychologically, we see that. Like we see that people are like yes or no, and that's it. Either I like you or I don't like you, and that's it. Either you're right or left. I mean, people just are put in boxes and they're at extremes. And being Chinese, like like I'm placed in a situation where I have to examine myself in between these two worlds, not really fitting in either. And I do think that that has become a strength of mine where I'm able to see the gray in this world that is trying to force us to choose black or white. Mm-hmm. And the growing up Chinese and having that background kind of on this journey has, I think it's kept me open. I think that because and I don't know as much about Australia, but I feel like it's pretty westernized as well. Like you have kind of these very Western standards and values, but then you have these Chinese, more Eastern, mm-hmm. so to speak, values. And being, you know, growing up in that culture, you have to figure out how to combine them. And live or, in society and conduct yourself. And live, exactly. Or you choose to go all in on Western culture and you're like, yeah. okay. Like I abandoned that completely, abandoned mm-hmm. that part of me. But if you, if you're someone who is trying to maintain that part of your identity, and and honestly, even if you jump into the other side, like you still have it within you, so that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but as someone who has pride in that and wants to maintain that, and then also has to live and conduct myself in that westernized culture, I have to vacillate, and I have I have a lot of practice and flexibility in like living in two worlds and like kind of. I say that I'm kind of a chameleon sometimes where I will, like when I was in high school, like I was in a lot of different groups, you know, I did sports, but then did theater, but then I was part of like the nerd bowl group. And then I was part of a bunch of different things as sports and all of that stuff. And, and that was just a, I was following my curiosities and inspirations at that point, but then also it was just this ability to kind of like shape shift a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily a strength. It was just something, it was an ability that I had to do, that I had. And perhaps something that was forced upon me because I was living in a culture where I couldn't fully be myself, but at the same time wanted to be included and accepted and, and all of that. 
Mm. So being the chameleon in terms of like adapting to culture where you needed to show up yeah. in different but ways. Also, and also, I mean, the chameleon part of it is also the ability to empathize with different people because you mm. have this understanding. I had this understanding of, like, if we talk about the race conversation, I had this understanding of what white people are, I just do, I don't know. But I also have this understanding of like black people. I'm yeah. not black though either. And so I can't say that I fully understand either of their experiences, but I have empathy for that. And that that practice again of like vacillating between worlds kind of enables me to to see everyone's perspectives. And for some people that might not be like a popular way of going about it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that everyone's right in their own right. Like people's feelings are valid and people's stances are valid in a very specific way. Does that mean that they're right as in like morally and ethically right? No, not necessarily. But it does mean that there's a reason for it. You know, there's a reason for beliefs that we carry. There's reasons for the actions that we take. And if we can understand, you know, what's happening behind the scenes, then we can have more compassion and empathy for other people. And that's also honestly how I think change happens. That's also a very slow way of, of, of <laughs> impacting. It's organic way. It's organic way, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think in terms of the empathy and the compassion piece, that's just so important, especially, you know, when you're a race that sort of stands in between the big players as well of this. Yeah, it can be quite complex as well. How has that impacted your life when you transform to motherhood as well with culture and influence? Because you would have different perspectives from the Chinese side to the Western to the in-betweens of everything to the way that, you know, you want to be showing up and in your own home, your own, you know, family life as well and your values. Having all of that meshed together, yeah, how has it impacted you or influenced you in the way that you're living I would say it's profoundly impacted me. There's a practice after birth called confinement in Chinese culture. Basically, the mother does nothing. I don't know if you're familiar with it. 100 days or something? <laughs> it's th- only 30 days. Ones. 30 days. <laughs> a 30 day. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So you basically don't do anything. And it was practiced traditionally in China. And it's actually a version of that is practiced in all traditional cultures around the world. It's just called different things and all the practices vary a little bit and the foods vary, but the intention is the same, is to make sure that the mother heals, the mother assimilates into her experience and into her new identity and that she has time to heal too, like physically heal. And so, you know- What are the things, what can't you do? Give people a perspective. Okay. What are some main things they say? So you don't go outside because you'll expose yourselves to wind or dampness. You don't shower. Again, dampness, yeah, you don't wash your hair, you stay covered, you know, you, you wear a hat if you can. And especially if, like, you know, I went outside for appointments, so I wore hats, even if it was like the summer, like the springtime and you wear socks and all that. You don't shower, you don't eat like cold food, like no salads, no smoothies. You keep your body warm, no guests over, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, it's like unheard of in Western culture. And the mom doesn't do anything. The mom sleeps, breastfeeds, if that's what they're doing and heal and eats and and there's no laundry. There's no hosting people. There's no grocery shopping. There's no cooking. There's there's barely diaper changing if, you know, I did that, but, but the idea of it is like the mom rests and your aunts or your neighbors or your, or your own mother or your mother-in-law come and they take care of things. Mm -hmm. And that's how I started motherhood. I started motherhood with my mom coming and it profoundly shifted how I entered this experience and I remember going back to work 12 weeks later, because that's how long the leave was at my company at that point, and just looking around and being like, this isn't right. Like, this isn't right for a mom to leave her baby at 12 weeks with strangers. 12 weeks is a short amount of time as well. It's a very, and honestly, I'm lucky. I was lucky at that point. Now the leave at my company is 16 weeks, but I'm lucky. There's no, this is, the U.S. was abhorrent maternal leave policy as in there is none (laughs) and there's no there's no support for moms so it just opened up my eyes like I couldn't have experienced my postpartum more drastically different being but like knowing that like my neighbor like who had a baby was doing like the opposite you know 
and just to be like, I'm here and I'm doing this. And like, what does this mean? And how, how, and then this is, and this, and it basically set me up for like, this is what motherhood should be. It should be that I'm supported. It should be that I, you know, that I'm first in a way, you know, it should be that I'm. So you really adopted this way of being for the first like period of time, first 12 Yeah, I did it with all three kids. And And the reason that I did the fourth trimester summit on the fourth trimester was because of this practice. Now I talked about a whole bunch of other different things or I covered because I didn't talk, I interviewed people, but that was the reason because I had this experience and my thinking was, this is the way it should be. This is the way that traditional cultures practice postpartum all around the world. This is how we preserve women's health. This is how we set ourselves up for the transition into menopause. I mean, that's, there's a saying in Ayurveda, it's the first 40 days for the next 40 years. Mm. This is, this is the crux. It's crucial. This is the crux of our future. And the reason why we, not the main reason, but there is like in Malaysia, they have a really great postpartum practice, traditional postpartum practice. And there have been studies where like the rate of like postpartum depression is a lot lower in Malaysia than it is in the U.S., a lot of other factors, right? It's not just one thing, but yeah. the fact that mothers feel supported in those first 40 days, they don't, you know, it's not that you have to not shower and you have to not visit people, but it's just the expectations that mothers have in those first, you know, when they first have a baby, there's all these expectations of making sure that other people are comfortable and that they're happy and that they're taken care of mm-hmm. and no one's actually taking care of the mother. Yeah, so crucial. I can really understand how that is profound for someone to really kickstart their journey. So having that experience, so that's the confinement phase you mentioned. Yeah. (laughs) How else has your experience transformed in terms of that piece? Like, is there other things that you have to do or are you very strict with the traditions that you follow or like, yeah, how does that sort of, how do you navigate that road for yourself? You mean like with 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 culture? Just my Chinese Yeah. You know, I would say that I'm a mix. I would love to be able to do a lot of things, but I also am in a biracial household. That's not an excuse by any means, but it makes it a little harder, you know, to, because I I initially wanted to like speak Chinese to my daughter and then like my Chinese isn't that great. And then, you know, like my husband wasn't going to teach her Chinese. So then I was just like, then I defaulted to not speaking Chinese. But then my mom moved in with us, you know, three and a half years after I had my daughter and and the month after I had my son and she's been with us since. And, and it's been a really interesting experience, like kind of inviting my mom into our family and having her like be like in it, not just like visiting. And she's, she works harder than, than all of us, like than the two of us combined really. But I grew up in a, also with three generations and that shaped me, you know, to be mm-hmm. able to have my grandparents in the same house as me whether or not like, you know, we agreed on things or whatnot is, is a little bit, you know, it's not exactly relevant. There's that whole idea of in Chinese culture of filial piety and respect for your elders. And we don't have that in the West, mm-hmm. you know, like old people are in, in nursing homes. They, they go there and they're, sh- they're shunned by society that no one talks about the elderly. No one takes care of them. No one watches out for their well-being. And they die alone. I mean, like that's, and it's really sad. And so for me, it's like, I I couldn't imagine doing that to my mom. Like I grew up in a household where my grandmother was in the house, you know, as long as she could possibly be for. And It's completely different, isn't it? Yeah. And especially for you, you've been like deeply rooted in it. And that's like that belief system is super strong as well. So that would be something that you would carry on for generations to come as well hope so yeah Yeah. what are the things that or challenges or things that you know you want people to be mindful of when it comes to motherhood expectations perfectionism that sort of thing you mentioned about martyrism earlier in our conversation like let's dig up a few things that you think would be really you know relevant or valuable for people to know I think that there is very few things that we need to do as mothers. I think that we need to make sure that our children are fed. We need to make sure that, you know, they get enough sleep and that their diapers are changed and, or they're, you know, they're clean in in some regard. 
but they don't, we don't need to be carting them to every single activity. We don't need to be bringing them to every play date. Like we don't need to be reading every single childhood development book that we can get our hands on. We don't need to be making them perfect lunches and dinners. There's just so much of what we're doing that we're... Are we overparenting? Well, it's tough because like this really fine line and it's also dependent on the child and the way that we parent is so rooted in how we were parented. And it's either I'm going to perpetuate the cycles, the experiences that I had, or I'm going to go in the opposite direction. That's pretty much kind of what I see. Mm -hmm. And... And I'll tell you, like when I was pregnant, when I was like thinking about being a mom, I was telling my husband and I joked, I was joking around mostly, but I was like, I'm going to pretend that I don't speak English. I'm I'm going to make my daughter, my, you know, my children translate all my documents for me and write my checks for me for my bills. Like we do that anymore. Right. But like, like I'm going to make them do the things that I had to do as a child. It was like this like idea of like, if I went through it and it made me the person I am, they're going to do it. And they're going to be the person, like they're going to be a good person because I'm a good person. And it was just, and then I remember going to therapy, a therapy session. And I was probably a year postpartum at that point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've gone to a couple of therapists and, you know, honestly, I, my self-development stuff hasn't really happened a lot in therapy because I take like other courses and stuff like that. But in this one instance, I was talking to this therapist and she, you know, we we're talking and she was like, you know, it sounds like your your childhood was really traumatic. And I was like, wow, it was traumatic. Mm-hmm. You know, it was what it was, right? Yeah. And then she's like, well, would you want your daughter to have experienced what you experienced? And I just started bawling. And, and I was oh, like, oh, wow. okay, then I guess it was kind of traumatic. <laughs> and that shifted. That yeah. made me understand like, okay, what I experienced actually isn't normal. And this is an opportunity for me to kind of create. And I can't say I'm not a perfect parent. I am not, 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 not a perfect parent. It's all an evolution. It's an evolution. And I truly believe that all parents are doing the best they can with the knowledge and the resources they have. For sure. And that is that self-compassion that we need to have for ourselves. You know, if you think you're over-parenting, then examine it. You might be. I don't know. I can't be the person who says that because maybe your child needs that extra attention for whatever reason, maybe they need an advocate for them, you know, because the system that they're part of is not great. So there's this, it's different in every scenario. Now, are there certain things that we don't need to do? Like, yes, but I can't say that overparenting is a bad thing. And I can't say that underparenting, I say, you know, for me, I parent for the long term, And so I parent like thinking what's going to serve them emotionally, physically, and spiritually kind of for the long term so for instance like you know I chose to co-sleep with my children because I didn't you know especially with my first she was in daycare and I didn't spend a lot of time with her so for us to have that connection at nighttime allowed us to forge a bond that I couldn't do during the day and so that was a choice I made and we all make those decisions but at the same time you know if I was working a job where I had to have sleep and I was a person who I, I personally can go with very little sleep for a very long time. But if I was someone who like couldn't, then I would have to make that decision. And that's not something that should define you as a mother. Yeah. You know, you're not and a I bad mother if you don't do that. Situation dependent, like everything as well and individual. I'm curious about, you know, for people out there who might be interested, you're the way that you parent the first child, second to the third, how is that evolution? Like when you say you don't have, you learned that you don't have to do everything or you don't have to do, you know, certain things. Is it very individual and also mm-hmm. situation? Obviously it's situational. Is your system very much based on the individual and the needs? Or like, do you have a certain formula where you're like, there's parts that work from the first one, the second one, I'll do the same thing you know, yeah, like how consistent or like, yeah, do you pick and mix? Whatever, share with us how your journey. I will say that I have become a lot more lax with the third. The first is, so then my biggest learning with motherhood is that it should be a community practice. We were meant to live in villages. We were meant to have multiple, multiple people who were like parents, who were trusted caretakers for our children. Because the way that I parented my first was not sustainable. Like there's a reason why 
the first child gets all the attention and the third one doesn't because we could, we, we had the luxury of having one child and doling that out. And then by the time you get to your third, like you can't, you only have so many hours in a day. You only have so much extra, not extra time, but time that you're not cooking or cleaning or working or whatever it may be. Like those three hours at night after, you know, between you pick them up and bedtime, like those, there's very little time at the end of the day, but when there's three kids. So it become even more glaringly obvious that the way that I parented my first was that was ideal, it, but it's not sustainable in our current culture. Like mm-hmm. Unless I lived in a commune with all of my best friends and all of their children, yeah, which the would village. be the dream. <laughs> yeah. yeah, walk over each other's house. Yeah, exactly. And so what I've kept, you know, I read as much as I can to them. I try to, you know, I try to connect with them as much as I can. I try to have more good moments than not. I try to, you know, be empathetic and to be a person with them. And the route that you took, did you decide that you were going the opposite or more similar with your own upbringing? Well, I would say that it wasn't the opposite. I think situationally it was the opposite. You know, I grew up in a poor household and, and now we're not, but I would say that, and I would say that, you know, my mom worked full time and, and the responsibilities that I had as a kid are very different than the responsibilities that my children have. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to explore like that experience of being the child of an immigrant and then being a, a very privileged child and how, and how I can raise a privileged child that still maintains the values that I have, that I would like for them to have. And that's been like, I've been thinking about it. I don't have a conclusion for it, but it's definitely this exploration of like, how do I, how do I instill these values that I, I kind of almost earned through trials and tribulations to children who don't have to go through that, but where those values will still be, are still needed in this world and in their lifetimes and and within, in being a a person and a contributing person on this planet. That's the balance, isn't it? The balance to find, well, like, because the situation has changed from being an immigrant, poor family child to, to now, you know, having a pretty good life where you get access to resources and things, but it's just also that balancing the culture, the family, your values. Plus, I guess for me thinking about it as well, it's like, you also don't want them to have everything too easy that they don't do anything. So that's, it's like, you know, like where do you, where's the line in terms of like what do you instill for discipline and things like that? Obviously that picture and narrative changes from when we were younger. Mm-hmm. But, it, yeah, it's like, you know, do they just grow up having everything and you give them because we can give them more than we ever had before. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was talking to my cousin's cousin about the, like, like we were like I, w- I was only spanked once as a child, but I grew up in a f- like my extended family where spanking was kind of a form of punishment. And so was she. And so we we're talking about it. And I was like, you know, I think that like spanking wouldn't work in my household because physical affection is a thing in my household. Like now with my children, mm. if I like, I will kiss them goodnight. I will, I will hug them. Physical affection was, they correlate like physicality with love. And so if I were to spank them, like they would not have the same reaction than that I had with spanking. Mm, yeah. I didn't have physical love. Like yeah. that wasn't a thing. So it was hey, just like, it's like one way or the other, because it can just be super like you could insert something or a belief into them when they're used to getting something a certain way. So as soon as you change that behavior, it's like, oh, so now this is how I receive love, which could be, yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty complex. It is complex because I looked around and I was like, okay, so let's just say, you know, a bunch of like Chinese immigrant households like spank their kids, which I don't know the percentage or anything like that. But let's just say that's a thing. But then that's the like, what, <laughs> like how, sense. but how is like, how, like that was back then. I hopefully yeah. that's like, hopefully spanking isn't a thing anymore. Cause I do think that this whole physicality thing, it, it screws it up, not screws it up, but like, it, it really changes things, yeah. changes the conversation. But like, but like, let's just say like, we were just, she and I were chatting and I'm like, this wouldn't work. This wouldn't work in my household. Like it goes against our value system. Like, like it goes against like, you know, in my household, it's like filial piety. It's like, respect your elders. If you don't do that, then, then things happen. Mm. But 
here, like we're like I'm trying to instill, you know, that we're a bit more equal than that. Like the whole uh, like authoritarian parenting is not, you know, I think it pops its head up because that was that's culturally around. But it is really interesting to see like that one instance of like, okay, if if I were to spank my children, which I haven't done ever, like that would change them. And but that was also at the same time was is also a profound experience for me. Like it was, I've been working with a money coach, and my spanking experience was around money, and the that had its own cascade. You know, it's not that spanking and like the experiences that my family members experienced when they were spanked was okay. It's just that it manifested differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We could go on for many hours, I'm sure, but <laughs> with you and I with certain stories and all of that. But I do have to bring it to an end because I know it's getting late there for you as well. So I want to leave you with a couple of questions because this has been really insightful. One is that at this current stage of your life with you know everything that you've learned and on your self-discovery journey, what does fulfillment mean to you? Mm, fulfillment means that personally I am I mean, that very plainly and happiness comes from the ability for me to pursue the things that I want to pursue in terms of the work that I do, in terms of the projects that I, I want to work on, in terms of the impact that I want to make on this. And, and I think at the end of the day, at my deathbed, you know, hopefully a very long time from now, fulfillment will be that I have my kids near me and that I have great relationships with them because that's the ultimate goal. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you mentioned it, which leads us into the last question. On your deathbed or if it was your last day on earth, what would be the message that you would want to leave your kids with or send the message to the world if you had that opportunity? What would the message be? Mm, It's possible. I think that there is a sense of I want to make sure that they leave with a sense of hope or I leave them with a sense of hope that they, it's kind of really cheesy, but that like we're hearing these stories of like, like what Tony Robbins did and what Dr. Madrid did, like there are things that may not seem possible or may not seem to make sense, but it is possible. And to follow that and to follow whatever calls to you, because there is, there are a lot of unknowns and, and there's a lot of magic in this world. And so just, you can tap into that if you want to. Mm, very wise tap into it thank you so much for all your insights and wisdom in this episode lisa it's been such a pleasure thank you for having me it's really been an honor to be here thank you so much for tuning into this episode if you enjoyed it be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is out also rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends because just one insight could change someone's life for better. Now go out there and make an impact and I will catch you in the next episode.